Well, this morning, we're just going to continue our journey through the prayer that our Lord taught us, the Lord's Prayer, as we find it in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. And so if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can do that. Or if you don't have your Bible with you, you can also turn to page 6 in your bulletin. You'll find it printed there for you as well. And at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, as we started a couple weeks ago, Jesus began at the beginning. He began where we should always begin in prayer, with reminding us who our God is and who we are in Him. He is our loving Father, and we are His very loved children because of what Christ had come to do with His life and His death and resurrection. And the next part of the prayer tells us that Christ, what Christ had come to do as well was to bring God's kingdom. A kingdom not originating from this world, but very much interested in establishing itself in this world. And its establishment is to be our mission, our calling as well. And this morning we come to the part of the prayer that addresses kingdom living. How do we live in the kingdom as kingdom subjects and children of the king? Young Christians and young theologians, I have just one question for you this morning as I give you a break from drawing all the pictures that I've given you the last couple weeks. This morning, just think about answering this. Name one thing that God has given to you to remind you that you are dependent on Him, that you need Him to meet every one of your needs. What's one thing God's given to you to remind you of that? This is the good news of God's provision for us through Jesus the Son, and it's a provision for our bodies and our souls as we were taught to daily ask God for it, found in Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow 
will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would reach into our hearts once again by your gospel, by your spirit who indwells us, to remind us, to renew in us the sense that you are our provider, the provider for our daily needs, our daily needs for bread and for clothing and for shelter, but our daily needs as well for forgiveness and intimacy and fellowship with you and with your people. Remind us of these things by your gospel, through your word this morning, that we may be better equipped to proclaim your kingdom and your world. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in the last 15 years, we've all witnessed the big cinema production of epic multi-volume fantasy stories that began as literature but then were turned into box office hits. And so in 2001 through 2003, we saw the production of the Lord of the Rings trilogy brought to the big screen. We all practically watched Daniel Radcliffe emerge from infancy and then become an adult while the Harry Potter movies were filmed. And then there were a few attempts at remaking some of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And of course, what all three of these stories give us is a view of fantastical worlds and magical creatures and epic battles and tragedy and betrayal and loss and heroes and friendship and good finally triumphing over evil. As those of us who joined the ranks of Christian nerddom a long time ago know, both Tolkien and Lewis held worldviews greatly influenced by Christianity, and this shows up clearly in their works. But strong themes from Christianity also show up in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, something that she freely and joyfully admits herself And while we might be tempted to first look at the characters and the plot of her books to find these themes, and they're surely there, I think it's actually helpful to first look at the setting of all her stories. How is the relationship between the spiritual and the physical, the scientifically known and then the mysterious unknown, the heavenly and then the earthly, shown and expressed in her books. If you know the stories at all, then you know that a person doesn't have to walk through a magic wardrobe or a picture frame to end up in a mysterious, magical world as one does with Lewis's stories. In Rowling's world, one doesn't have to think that the age when magical beings and kingdoms and prophecies reigned has long since passed and an age long forgotten, as with Tolkien's creation. In the world of Harry Potter, magic, mystery, spiritual, and the unexplainable coexist, not outside of, not beyond, or before, or after this world, but inside of this world, along with this world. In fact, as Rowling's story... As in the reality of 
that our own God has created, the spiritual and mysterious, the material and the scientific are the same reality, the same world. Magic just doesn't happen at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. It happens in the streets of London and in the farmlands of central England. Hogwarts is simply the community of those who believe better than anyone else that these two aspects of reality, the magical and the natural, are part of the same world. They believe better than anyone else that heaven kisses earth, that heaven and earth touch all the time. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is asking to us, the church, to see the world this way too. He's calling us to live out of our identities as children of the King, children of our Heavenly Father, and to be a part of his mission to expand the kingdom that Jesus began and is continuing to bring in this world, this earth, in very real and physical and spiritual ways. When he says, our Father in heaven, he is defining for us our family identity. When he prays, your kingdom come, he's defining his mission and ours. Then, Jesus prays, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he defines our dependence on our king for his daily provision and how we are to relate to others in the community. We aren't left to work for the expansion of his kingdom while fending for ourselves. Instead, we're given this part of the prayer to access the riches that are laid up for us with our Heavenly Father. We go to the Lord to ask that what was promised in word be done in action. As John Calvin taught in this part of the prayer, we ask God not to love us in word only, but also in deed. And so prove by faith that we know He is such a God. Not far and distant in some other dimension from another age or through a magic portal but a very present God with us and in us daily. In fact, by the time we reach the petition, give us this day our daily bread, one thing should be very clear to us. Our our identities as children of a king that our world hates, who is bringing a kingdom that they will not understand in which they will find a threat, makes this petition, give us this day our daily bread. And the one that we'll look at next Sunday, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it makes these petitions necessary. We're called to live as needy people, dependent people. Not to pretend that's what we are, but to recognize that that is exactly what we are in truth. And so the larger question for us is, how do those living in the most affluent culture and existence today say to God, give us this day our daily bread with authenticity? How do we pray this prayer 
and mean it. Especially since the very core of this petition goes against the cultural identity that we breathe in and out every day. Last week we were reminded that that our culture and even our form of government tell us that no one has the right to rule us unless we give it to them first. An idea that has no place between a king and his royal subjects. But our culture also tells us that we make our own way in this world by our sweat, our work ethic, our prowess, and our skill, and our education. And you, and you alone, can provide for your own needs and create the identity that you want to have. And so our culture thinks that the most important way to be spending our time is to be reaching for a standard of living that proclaims to others My family has it together. Look and see how we've provided for ourselves. Come closer, but but not too close. Just close enough and get a view from this angle. This angle which will give you the best view of how educated our children are and how well we dress and how well we vacation and how well we live all the time. And why? Because we have provided very well for ourselves, haven't we? The lust of the eyes and the pride of life are very good buddies, spending lots of time together. But while Jesus has already addressed our desires to pretend and impress others in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, at the beginning of his exposition on prayer... Later on in this same chapter, chapter 6 and verse 24, he addresses those who would seek to serve two masters. Those who would try to build their own empires, their own little towers of Babel, alongside serving the kingdom of God. And he says, it's impossible, my child. You will neglect one in order to serve the other. You don't have it in you to give 100% to both your kingdom and the kingdom of God, or even 50% to each. There's only room for one throne in your life. And so, verse 33, seek first His kingdom, and all of your needs will be thrown in too. It's a call to leave idolatry by joyfully accepting dependence. The beginning of our petition this morning in verse 11 starts with the word give. Give. And already by saying this word we have left the dominant American view that says earn, achieve it, merit it. Already we're in the world of dependence, of admitting neediness by simply saying give. John Calvin writes, Accordingly, this generosity of God is necessary, no less for the rich than for the poor. For with full cellars and storehouses, men would faint with thirst and hunger unless they enjoyed their bread through His grace. But even more than this, by starting with give, 
we are also entrusting to our loving Father that He will be the one to determine what enough means. He will be the one who will determine the type and the extent and the timing of our material blessings. To say it another way, this part of the Lord's Prayer teaches us contentment. And in His grace, God has given us a means for fighting discontentment. He's given us prayer. He's given us prayer to fight the discontentment of our hearts. Prayer that reminds us that everything we have now is because He gave it. And everything we will have is because God will determine that we need it. Even more, this prayer reminds us that everything we don't have and everything we won't have is because this same abundantly generous and all-seeing God knows that we really don't need what we want. And in some cases, we might be injured by what we want. This part of the Lord's Prayer should remind us of the direction from which all of our earthly blessings flow. And it should teach us to be content and even joyful in the knowledge that if we don't have a particular blessing, it's precisely because our good king decided that it was best that we shouldn't, at least for now. But we also ask that he would provide us with this day's daily bread. We ask for daily bread because it reminds us how dependent we are, hour by hour, for everything that we receive from God. This part of the prayer reaches all the way back to Exodus chapter 16 and the daily manna that was sent from heaven, which the Hebrews would gather in the morning, just enough for the day's need, but not enough to store up so that the people would think that their needs were met by their own devices and planning. It points to 1 Kings 17, where God miraculously and daily filled up a jar of flour and then a jar of oil for the widow at Zarephath, just enough to feed her family and Elijah the prophet one day at a time. This part of the prayer, but also reaches forward from Exodus and 1 Kings to our Lord's temptation in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus was tempted to do exactly what Exodus 16 was meant to prevent, to depend on his own power and strategies. When Jesus was tempted to do this, he saw Satan's temptation for what it was, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 8 saying, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus is teaching us to remember this absolutely vital and central aspect of faith, which he himself lived, that all you have can be given to you or taken away from you in five minutes. And so you who are struggling to make ends meet, you could receive a promotion or a better job offer tomorrow. And you who may invest millions could lose it all in a stock market crash or a lawsuit tomorrow. These things ultimately are not in your power, though it may seem so. 
This part of the Lord's Prayer confronts us with our deism, which means our subconscious assumptions that we live in this cause and effect world where natural human causes bring about the effects we want. And that we live in a world where heaven does not kiss earth, but only smiles at it once in a while from afar. It confronts our deism, which tells us that we're better off spending less time praying and more time gaining control of every aspect of our lives. Most important on God's agenda for us is not whether we live in great prosperity or with just enough for today, although He promises to give us that. But most important on God's agenda is whether we're living in dependence and in trust on Him. In Him. But you'll note, too, that this petition reminds us of our physicality. That we are physical beings. We have physical needs. And we always will, even in the age to come. And this means that we need a physical Savior who will feed us physical bread. And since our Savior does this for us, we're called to do the same. Which is why the church for 2,000 years has been and continues to be the leading institution on this earth for providing medical care for the sick and food for the hungry and blankets for the cold and homes for the orphan and the widow. Why? Because we believe in a physical kingdom that's already begun, that is continuing to come. And this kingdom is needy. But it's united to a Savior of plenty. And so we should not in any way feel guilty for praying for physical blessings as though that all makes us pleasure-seeking hedonists. I mean, you look and you see how many very physical, earthly prayers do we find in Scripture. Prayers for food and rain and for more children and military victory and much, much more. These things are rarely chastised by God. And when they are, it's because they are sought with wrong motives, not because they're asked for. The problem in my heart is not that I ask too much for these things, but rather that I barely ask at all, which reveals how much I don't see myself as needy. But this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, challenges me to recognize what I'm slow to admit every day, that I'm very needy. But I have a God who is eager to take care of me, much more eager to take care of me than he is even to take care of the birds of the sky and the grass of the field, even though they never go without food or clothes. In 1866, the missionary Hudson Taylor, he set out from London, bound for China for the second time. But this time he was bringing along his wife and his four children with him. And as he thought about his family and the mission that they were taking on together, he thought also about his Heavenly Father's promises. And he wrote, I am taking my children with me. And I notice that it is not difficult for me to remember that the little ones need breakfast in the morning, dinner at midday, and something before they go to bed at night. 
Indeed, I could not forget it. And I find it impossible to suppose that our Heavenly Father is less tender or mindful than I. I do not believe that our Heavenly Father will ever forget His children. I'm a very poor father, he said, but it is not my habit to forget my children. God is a very, very good father. It is not his habit to ever forget his children. Our king calls me and he calls you to join his mission, but he never stops being a loving father who promises to care for our needs along the way. Our identity as his children leads to our mission as his royal subjects, and it leads to his promises for our provision as we eat from the bounty of his table. And this bounty, this provision, it's, it's not just for our physical needs. As Colin said earlier, as Jesus will save himself in John 6, I am the manna that came down of heaven. I am the bread of life. This provision is for our spiritual needs as well. We pray for daily bread for our mouths and daily bread for our souls, as we say the second half of this petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not, notice, be gracious to me that I might work off my debts. It's not, be kind and give me time so that I can take care of this, as though our father had suddenly become a bookie or a mob boss. This is what the prodigal son had planned to do, that Tyler read from us, for us earlier. But this showed that he didn't understand his father. He was like the Gentiles that Jesus told us not to imitate at the beginning of teaching us about prayer, who thought that they needed to go to great lengths to impress God with their prayers and piety just to squeeze a morsel of grace from him. But Jesus says, your father isn't like that. He isn't like that with meeting your needs for daily bread, and he isn't like that with meeting your needs for forgiveness. There's a recurring commercial for car insurance that comes on TV now and then, which you've probably seen. I find it really irritating. A famous TV personality comes out and tells you that with Allstate, your rates won't go up just because you've been involved in a car accident, even if it was an accident that, was, that you were at fault for, you caused. And then he calls it accident forgiveness. Accident forgiveness. And it's irritating because we all should be thinking, yeah, but I pay you every month, every month to help me when I'm in an accident. When you take care of me in those situations, you're not forgiving me as though I've offended you. You're doing your job. A job that I pay you for every year. But our Father doesn't approach our debt, our sin, 
as though we can begin making payment to him in monthly installments. And he doesn't approach our debt as though it is his job and obligation to take care of it either. Instead, he takes care of our debt purely out of his love and his grace, not obligation. And he takes care of it at great cost to him and with great finality. He doesn't extend another line of credit. He pays for it with the life of his dear son, the one who's teaching us this very prayer. When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, he was telling us to pray something that he himself was going to accomplish through his ministry and sacrifice and resurrection. As Paul tells us in Colossians 2, the Father has made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so our Father is, as John Calvin says, not only a Father, but by far the best and kindest of all fathers. And what is the heart of this Father? Your Father, my Father. It is the heart of the one who leaves his estate to run out to the road when he sees his ungrateful and wasteful and pleasure-seeking rebellious son returning to him. It is the heart of this same father who, while weeping and kissing his prodigal, who's still stained with the mud of pigs and the blood of brawls and fights and the stale perfume of illicit lovers, this same father is also thinking of his other ungrateful son who's sick with jealousy and his own self-righteousness and pride, who couldn't bring himself to even look upon his repentant brother. And for both, the repentant prodigal and the hardened Pharisee, the father, he wants this same thing. He wants nothing more for either of them than for both of them to know their Father as He really is. Gracious and kind and delighted by His own love for His children. But we also pray as we forgive our debtors. We also pray as we forgive our debtors because we are admitting in this prayer that the forgiveness that brings us into the kingdom and the forgiveness that we extend to others is the same forgiveness. It's coming from the same Father, through the same work of the same Christ. Theologian and pastor N.T. Wright says that refusing to forgive one another is like saying, in effect, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived at least not for them. I don't think the forgiveness of sins has actually occurred. Failure failure to forgive one another isn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching. It's cutting off the branch you're sitting on. 
The only reason for being kingdom people, for being Jesus' people, is that the forgiveness of sins is happening. And so if you don't live forgiveness, you're denying the very basis of your new existence, your new citizenship, your new kingdom. And of course, we're not claiming that we must forgive others in order to earn God's forgiveness for ourselves. That's not what Jesus is saying. But rather, we are reaffirming our identity as forgiven children of our Father in heaven. And we are reaffirming what the kingdom mission is all about, that His kingdom has come and is coming by the Spirit through us as well. By saying, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we're demonstrating that prayer and life have locked together. That heaven has kissed us and is now extending its love to others. It's important for us, I think, to see as well that this request for the Father to give us daily bread and the request for forgiveness They're joined together in this petition. We pray them all in one breath. At the heart of both of these requests is the renewal of the relationship. As our children grow, our kids, they're not by our side all day long. They get older, they get more mature, they spend more time at school, more time playing with friends. But every night at dinner or morning for breakfast, there is a renewing of your relationship to them. How? Well, by reminding them that their basic needs are met by their parents. Food that they didn't buy, put on a table they didn't choose, under a roof they couldn't afford. And the dependence they have is not something that they are to learn to resent. It is something that they are to grow in by understanding how much their parents love them. Do Ellen and I have to feed Aubrey, have to feed our child? Well, yes, we do. But is that why we gather around the table and eat with our daughter? Of course not. We do it because we delight to do it. And we are twisted, distorted, selfish parents compared to the perfect love of our Heavenly Father. Likewise, the relationship with our children is renewed when discipline takes place. When we have to discipline Aubrey. When she admits to her sin and asks for forgiveness. And here's where the analogy completely breaks down. But being sinful parents ourselves, we way too often find ourselves asking forgiveness from her. Why? Because if we don't, we're going to cease to be a family? Because if we don't, Aubrey won't be our daughter or we won't be her parents? Well, of course not. But because if we don't, the relationship will continue on only more damaged and marred, and full of deception than it was before. We repent and ask for forgiveness, and we forgive one another to renew the relationship. 
and renewal of the identity that we already have is what we're asking for in both of these requests. Lord, once again, today, renew the relationship by providing for me. Renew the relationship by forgiving me. And let me be a person with renewed relationships with others, extending not my grace, but yours to them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you are our loving Father. We thank you that you are a loving Father who promises to take care of us, who promises to delight in providing for us even more than you delight in taking care of the birds and the flowers of the field, which you never neglect. You delight far more, still more, in providing for us. But you are that kind of a God. Let this spur us on to a prayer life of dependence. Let us be spurred on to seek you daily in neediness and dependence, even if we don't feel our neediness, even if our cupboards seem full, even if our bank accounts are overflowing, let us be people who seek you as we truly are, people who are needy and dependent upon you for all that we have. And let us also seek you because your Son is the bread of heaven. And as the bread of heaven, we have forgiveness of sins in his name. Let us come to you experiencing and knowing this same father who runs down the street to embrace his children as you do with the prodigal, knowing that you are that eager as well to receive us, to love us, to welcome us. Let us know the joy of your forgiveness, the joy you have in giving it, and joy that we would have in receiving it. We pray these things in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. And now, church...